Hello, and welcome to Kindred Spirits Book Club, the podcast where two grown-ass ladies, wait, three grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables and other books in the Lucy Maud Montgomery universe. I'm Reagan Duffy, and today I'm joined by my co-host Kelly Gurner and one of our favorite guests, Katie Stewart from Owl's Nest Publishing. Hi, ladies. Hello. <laughs> Hi, Reagan. So ladies, you know, when this episode releases, we will only be a few days away from Christmas. I hope all of our listeners have reached the point in their winter holiday season where they're just enjoying the beauty of this time of year and not frantically running around malls and grocery stores for last minute holiday preparations. But probably that will be happening. <laughs> we also know that most of our listeners are women and that women often carry the burden of making magic during the holiday season. So we hope that you all are finding some time for real holiday joy and peace at this point. A few weeks ago, we did a gift guide for our listeners, but this episode, I want to know for each of you, what are you wishing for for this holiday? Since we are doing a lot of that holiday magic making for others, how do you feel cared for during the holidays? Okay, Reagan, hilariously, my husband listened to our whole past episode because I told him that I mentioned one of the things that I wanted for Christmas this year in our gift guide. So I was like, you have to listen if you want to know what I want. <laughs> and so he finally listened and he asked me what a plant basket was. So Katie, to rewind for your benefit, one of the things I said I wanted for Christmas was like a beautiful house plant in like a nice basket. Mm, yes. He genuinely did not know what I meant. Like somehow... <laughs> <laughs> in his 44 years alive, he has never seen or noticed a plant in a basket. Everything about this concept completely befuddled him. He's a really smart guy, right? He's an engineer. He's a scientist. He's an inventor. But like plant basket, he couldn't he couldn't wrap his mind around it. And finally, he asked me how I would water the plant without getting the basket wet. <laughs> As if, the, as if the dirt was just sitting in. Yes, that's exactly. He thought the basket was full of soil. <laughs> and he didn't understand that the basket goes around the plant pot. <laughs> okay, but here's my question. Mm -hmm. Do you want a hanging plant basket or like one on the ground? Oh, I was thinking about one on the ground. But now that you point that out, I think I maybe need to specify <laughs> You know what? Honestly, I will take, I'll take it however it comes. <laughs> <laughs> and then Reagan, to answer your original question of, you know, what makes us feel cared for during the holidays? For me, it's really when at this point anyway, when other people make plans and tell me that all I need to bring is myself. <laughs> I mean, I do like planning things generally, but around this time of year, it just feels way too much. And fortunately, I did experience one event this December where that was the case, though. So I serve on the board of directors for a nonprofit theater in Los Angeles called the Gary Marshall Theater in Burbank. It's just the best. If you are one of our listeners who's in Southern California, I really do hope you'll check it out. And if you have any questions, please reach out to me. I'm happy to introduce you. Anyway, the theater staff hosted a holiday brunch for the board, and it was cozy and beautifully decorated and so festive and just wonderful and delicious. And I, for one, felt really just appreciated for all the time that I've invested in the theater this year. That is so nice. It's so lovely. I'm glad you got a chance to feel appreciated. I yeah. also love at this time of year when I can get a break from planning. 
How about you, Katie? What makes you feel loved and cared for this time of year? Yeah, I also love to feel cared for and thought about. I guess, you know, I don't know that I have a clear answer to this question because it is true that so much of the holiday planning comes down to me and making sure that all the kids have their gifts and everything's prepared for. Although I will say we are hosting my family for the first time on Christmas Eve this year. We've never hosted for any holiday. And Steve, my husband, is taking over most of the meal he's gonna smoke a ham that's like what <gasps> good really job steve do. he's Amazing. doing it so i am super grateful for that because that clears me i don't have to worry about the main dish i can make the house feel festive and prepare other things without having to worry about that so and i'm looking i'm really looking forward to it we've never hosted a holiday and we have the space now to do it in our new home so i'm really looking forward to that but just in general The thing that really put me in a festive mood this year is watching Hallmark Christmas movies, which I've never (sighs) done before. I've never watched Hallmark Christmas movies. And I am deep in, you guys. I am. I I love them. (laughs) I love them, Katie. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) There was one that I watched the other night that actually made me cry, like legitimate, like weeping. Oh, I can tell you because I've written down my favorites so far. It was called Take Me Back for Christmas. I think it came out last year. Oh, I haven't seen that one. So I've discovered that one of my tropes that I really like in these holiday Christmas movies, it's sort of like a, it's a wonderful life kind of thing where you, in a lot of these, like they're married and then they make some sort of wish that they want their life to be different and they end up not being with their husband and they are so sad and they want to go back. Anyway, so there's like- Yeah, there's like a time travel element. Time travel or parallel universe. And the one that I that made me so emotional, her mother had passed away in her real life. Oh my gosh, it was just, it was like really emotional. And I cried real tears. I love. (laughs) So anyway, you got to watch that one. I really liked it. And I also thought like she was just such a spunky, fun character, the main character. And her acting did not feel wooden. Like sometimes I think the acting in the Hallmark Christmas movies can feel a little wooden. And she Uh, was so dynamic. So anyway, I really liked it. No, I'm with you. They're really hit or miss. I find the ones that I love are like the more sort of exotically festive the location, the better I like them. Yeah. It's funny that you kind of like find your trope thing. Yes. Yeah. And they're kind of like picking out a romance novel a little bit in that way where it's like, you know, the trope that you really love and you just kind of gravitate toward that. We talk about rivals to lovers all the time on this podcast, obviously, because that's Mm -hmm. Anne Gilbert's thing. And sure enough, that is the trope that Reagan and I both love in romance novels. I would say the same applies for Hallmark movies. Yes, yes, yes. And you just may as well just lean into all of your favorites around that trope. Like, why not? Why yeah. not? Yeah. And and you know what? I think that Christmas is is an appropriate time for some cheese. So, you know, my husband makes is making fun of me ruthlessly for watching Hallmark Christmas movies. And I don't care. No. I love them and they make me feel good and happy and festive. <laughs> And like kind of the whole point of Christmas, especially as adults, is nostalgia. So why wouldn't you just like sink into the nostalgia by reading a really comforting book, watching a really comforting movie? Like, you know, this is not the time. No one is looking for their like Oscar this month. We're just sinking into like the things that feel comfortable. Yes. This is not time to watch Oppenheimer. This is time (laughs) to watch Take Me Back for Christmas. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> well, for me, one of the things that really makes me feel cared for during the season is having some true downtime because it tends mm. to be time of the year where things are so overscheduled. And we started just declaring a day cozy pajama day. And the whole point <laughs> is to wear pajamas and read books. Like we sit on the couch together and read our books and watch a Christmas movie together and eat popcorn. And that's just... Like the whole point is not to have any plans. And I love that because I love having a day where nothing, the whole schedule is not to have a schedule. That sounds so fun and sweet. I love that. I love that so much. And Regan, one of the things I love about you and Alice so much is you both love traditions. <laughs> you know, seriously, this is the fun thing about being friends with them is you do something super fun once and they're like, great, this is our new tradition. We will be doing this annually. Put it in your calendar now. And I love it. We have, I have tried to occasionally drop a tradition where I was like, do we need to make Christmas cookies for all the neighbors? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> well, because Alice is just like you. She likes traditions too. So she wants to follow through on all of it. So that's why I really like this tradition. I was like, this is great. This is the perfect tradition. I don't have to prep anything. <laughs> yes. I don't have to plan anything. All I have to do is make sure I have a book to read and we have some <laughs> snacks in the cabinet. Yep. Perfect. Love That's it. the best kind of tradition where it's, it's just, just relaxing. Yep. A hundred percent. And there's something still for a kid, this idea of I'm deliberately going to wear my pajamas all day that just feels really like indulgent. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to lasso us back to this episode. <laughs> yes. Leaving I... <laughs> the holidays behind. <laughs> So for today's episode, we are returning to the wonderful book, The Blue Castle, and we wanted to do the thematic deep dive into the book and compare and contrast it in some ways to the Anna Green Gables series and explore some of the same themes that we had been looking at in Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, and Anne of Windy Poplars, which have kind of been the through line through our season this year. Our kindred spirit of the episode is our other star of The Blue Castle, Barney Snaith. So I have to say that it's a funny name for a romantic hero, but it is absolutely perfect for the easygoing and cheerful rapscallion who steals our hearts. Barney is the perfect counterweight to Valency's life of dull decorum. He's carefree and spirited and not held back by convention. We learn later on that he's from a wealthy family, but has renounced his connection with his father and the money in favor of a simple life connected to nature and the company of honest, unpretentious people. Barney and Valency are escaping the same thing, a life that feels blunted by propriety. And in their escape, they find their home within each other. We adore Barney's freewheeling, devil-may-care mentality, and we love him for seeing Valency and loving her just as she is. Katie, do you want to read our quote of the episode? I would love to. The Blue Castle is full of truly magical descriptions of nature and the wild world Valency and Barney inhabit. A great example of this is Maud's description of December in the backcountry. And this is the quote. December, early snows and Orion, the pale fires of the Milky Way. It was really winter now. Wonderful, cold, starry winter. How Valency had always hated winter, but now she loved winter. Winter was beautiful, almost intolerably beautiful. Days of clear brilliance, evenings that were like cups of glamour, the purest vintage of winter's wine, nights with their fire of stars, cold, exquisite winter sunrises, lovely ferns of ice all over the windows, moonlight on birches in a silver thaw, ragged shadows on windy evenings, torn, twisted, fantastic shadows. Great silences, austere and searching. The sun suddenly breaking through gray clouds. 
ice gray twilights broken by snow squalls when their cozy living room with its goblins of firelight and inscrutable cats seemed cozier than ever. Every hour brought a new revelation and wonder. Oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> that was a beautiful reading too. Oh my gosh. I just want to live in that quote. Mm-hmm. Oh, me too. It's hard to pick out a favorite line, but I love the image of go- the, the goblins of firelight. Maud is so good at setting a scene. So mm-hmm. good at it. I don't know any author who does it better. In our story club today, our listeners know that the themes we keep coming back to this season originate in one of the very first scenes from Anne of Green Gables, when Anne asks Matthew if he'd rather be divinely beautiful, angelically good, or dazzlingly clever. And over the course of this season, we've talked about those three ideas and how they change for Anne as she grows from Anne of Avonlea to Anne of the Island and then to Anne of Windy Poplars. And last episode, we introduced you all to our favorite Montgomery standalone novel, The Blue Castle. One of the reasons we wanted to talk about The Blue Castle now before we finish the Anne series is so we can talk about how these same themes apply in this book. Today, we're going to discuss our heroine, Valency, and the way her journey is similar to and different from Anne's own. So one of the themes that is very apparent in this book is around the idea of beauty. Like Anne, from the very beginning of the book, we learn that Valency is considered very plain, a fact which she has accepted but is quite conscious of. Valency's cousin Olive is the beauty of the family, and Valency is sure that Olive gets everything, has the easy, enviable life, because she is beautiful. What this really makes me think of is how Anne put so much stock into her physical appearance because she connected the way she was treated, you know, in her younger years to how she looked. We talked about how as a child, Anne's caregivers treated her like an unpaid servant. They neglected her and they constantly told her that she was homely. And Valency experiences something quite similar. Her family ignores her and doesn't treat her with love or care. And the cause really seems to be her beauty or lack thereof, since her cousin Olive, who is beautiful, is treated very differently. So again, we are returning to this theme with Maud that possessing physical beauty leads to a better life. So it's no wonder that both Anne and Valency are acutely aware that they're not conventionally beautiful. I think this is a really interesting point when you think about Lucy Maud Montgomery herself, who was considered very attractive, very beautiful. she That's how she's described. But I think the similarity that doesn't have to do with her physical appearance, but does have to do with the families that she tends to put her heroines into, sort of stodgy and uncaring and repressive So Anne dealt with that before she was with Matthew and Marilla, but really Marilla a little bit, especially at the beginning of Anne of Green Gables, but then Valancey's family. And that really is similar to Maude's real life. And so I just think it's interesting that she always, she always pulls in these aspects of her own upbringing into these characters. But I do find it fascinating, the contrast with both Anne and Valancey, who are described as sort of homely when Maude herself was, was sort of anything but. She was very beautiful. That's such an interesting point. And it makes me think, I mean, this is going to be a theme I think we're going to return to in the podcast a little bit, but it really makes me think about how that speaks to sort of Maud's values and how she thinks about beauty and how for her, it's not something that she values as much as a strong moral sense or integrity mm-hmm. or authenticity. Mm-hmm. And as Valency becomes more herself and allows herself to shine through, she does become more beautiful, even if it's not a conventional beauty, which is said over and over in the book. But she, because her personality is shining, she becomes more attractive to the people around her. 
Yeah, exactly right. Well, and we see that happen with Anne as well, that mm -hmm. as she grows older and she experiences love, it's almost the opposite, right? As she is loved, as she has wonderful connections with other people, as she cares about her own beauty a little less, that mm -hmm. lets it shine through. Yes. And the fact that it's a little unconventional, maybe compared to somebody like Diana. Mm -hmm. The people who know her see her as very beautiful. Yes. Yes. Just like Anne saved herself in her imagination by imagining herself beautiful, imagining friends and luxurious surroundings. So Valancy saves herself with her imagination in the Blue Castle. Valency's Blue Castle is truly out of a fairy tale or Arthurian legend. Turrets and banners standing out among the mist and mountains. Valency imagines herself in, quote, jewels that queens might have worn, robes of moonlight and fire. And she's furnished the Blue Castle with, quote, couches of roses and gold, long flights of shallow marble steps with great white urns, halls of mirrors that reflected only handsome knights and lovely women, herself the loveliest of all, for whose glance men died. <laughs> <laughs> Anne relates, right? Like this could come straight out of 11-year-old Anne's. Totally. Imagine. Yes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is the setting for Avril's Atonement. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and unlike in the Blue Castle, in real life, Valency is considered plain and dowdy. A family member once decreed that Valency's complexion meant that she couldn't wear colors. So once Valency has outgrown maidenly white dresses, she gets to be confined to dull browns and drab neutrals. That same family member decreed that Valency's face shape meant that she should only wear her hair in a tall bouffant pompadour style. So... Now her hairstyle is out of fashion and ill-suited to her personality. The Valency at the beginning of the book doesn't dare to push back against either of these decrees for fear of offending her relatives and her mother, so she doesn't get a chance to find her own style. You can see how directly that contrasts to a kid like Anne, who even though by circumstance had to wear drab and plain clothes, immediately started figuring out ways to add flowers and color and make them her own style where she could, even mm -hmm. if it means dyeing her hair green. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or looking think... ridiculous in Sunday school because she her... <laughs> Her hat is so full of flowers. Her hat decked out with, with wildflowers. Yes. Oh, God. Anne, we love it. <laughs> I think it's so interesting in these early depictions of Valency's imaginary blue castle that we also are getting a little bit of foreshadowing of Valency's future life married to Barney. Valency imagines herself clothed in robes of moonlight. And of course, once she's married and living with Barney, she's able to choose clothes and her hairstyle that finally suit her and that make Barney think of her as moonlight. And then, of course, even nickname her moonlight, which swoon, I love. I know. So, <laughs> so good. So swoony. <laughs> Once Valency escapes her dreary life, we see that her supposedly plain looks were the product of a plain life. This is very much going to your point, Katie. Once she can buy the clothes she likes and wear her hair the way she prefers, she begins to look lovely. Mm -hmm. You know, Maud often describes Valency as looking ethereal, like an elf or a fairy. And as she starts to bloom in her freedom, her beauty grows too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not only is she blossoming into more of herself but she is also learning sort of what 
I mean, I know that th- this, this feels a little shallow, but she's learning what looks good on her too. Yeah. She's learning how to wear her ha- hair and what kind of, she doesn't have to be dressed drably. She can wear things that make her feel pretty because the clothes are pretty. And she can pick the styles that suit her. Mod sort of makes a, a big deal about how her hairstyle is like shingled, which I think is like a bob cut. But she cuts her hair really short and Mod goes out of her way to say like, hey, this was way before bobs were ever in fashion. She really looked out of the ordinary, but it suited her. Yes. Right. And so again, we see this Valency bucking against convention, but choosing a path that made sense to her. And it just mm-hmm. reflects back her own beauty. Yes. Yeah. As Barney says to Valency, when you look backward over your shoulder, you're maddening, especially in twilight or moonlight. An elf maiden, a wood sprite, you belong to the woods, moonlight. You should never be out of them. In spite of your ancestry, there is something wild and remote and untamed about you. I want someone to say that about me. (laughs) Please. Between the healing power of living so closely with nature, Barney's genuine appreciation and affection, and the freedom to dress and wear her hair, to even cut her hair as she likes, Valency's appearance changes to the point that a noted painter of beautiful women who meets Valency on a hike sees her as an alluring wood nymph and wants to paint her. And there's something about this moment that like could be a little cheesy, like, oh, this random man thinks she's beautiful, so it must be true. But I forgive it. I actually think the way it's written is very charming. Like the artist catches a glimpse of Valency in a shaft of sunlight with Linnea flowers in her hair. So we're seeing again that Valency is at her most beautiful when mm-hmm. she is enhanced by the natural world. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things that this moment with the painter points out in connection with Valency's new awareness of herself in contrast to her cousin Olive, is that Valency's beauty is not the typical conventional kind of beauty. And that's what Valency always compared herself to. It never occurred to her that somebody could look beautiful even if they didn't look like Olive. Mm-hmm. Barney even tells her that she thinks that only people who look like Olive are beautiful. But there's so many different kinds of beauty. Yes. And I think that also speaks a little bit to kind of the overall theme with Deerwood being an extremely conventional society. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's right, Reagan. Well, and Valency's physical beauty is not the only metaphor for her personal growth in this book. There's also the rose bush. So you remember at the very beginning of the book, Valency has a rose bush planted outside her mother's house that has never bloomed, even though it looks green and healthy. And Valency hacked it to bits in frustration. And at the end of the book, as we see Valency grown into her self-actualization, her sovereignty, her independence, so does the rose bush start to bloom. When Valency returns to her mother's house... After she's gotten married to Barney, the bush is full of roses. We can also think a little bit about how Valency's health itself is a metaphor in these same lines. One of the things that we learn is that not only about Valency's heart problem, which we find out later was never serious, but that she has always been considered relatively sickly, that she would get nasty colds that would last all winter, often getting an annual case of bronchitis every year. She's never been able to win the Sunday school attendance prize because she misses so much because she's ill, no matter what steps her mother takes. And her mother very much blames Valency for her health. She even says to Valency at one point, I think if a person makes up their mind not to have colds, they will not have colds, which... Wild take. Wild Wild take. take. (laughs) Wild take. (laughs) 
But that year that Valency lives with Barney in an island cabin, she's hanging out in the snow. She's swimming in the lake all day. She's sitting outside in the night air. She's eating who knows what on whatever schedule she likes to eat. All of those kinds of behaviors that she's been warned away from because they would be risky for someone who gets sick easily. But her body obviously knows what her mind doesn't yet know, that she's living well and the way she's meant to live. And one thing we see with Valency is that her beauty emerges once she is not only loved by Barney, but when she falls in love with herself. As she treats herself better, as she enjoys her life, she lives it to the fullest and believes herself worthy of enjoying her own life. Her appearance, her physical health, her rosebush, <laughs> that all changes as well. We also discussed goodness as a theme in our Anne episodes. And here too, we see this theme play out in the Blue Castle in really interesting ways, I think, actually. As Valency becomes more sure of herself and of her choices apart from those of her family, she feels that she can act independently instead of obeying her family's decrees and preserving the family reputation above all else. Compared to her family, Valency's actions are governed by her inherent moral sense. So my question for you guys is, how do you think that Valency's personal morality, her like authentic moral code contrasts to like what she has grown up with in Deerwood or what she's grown up with with her family? Well, I, I think it's a good question because I think her family is very Victorian sort of in their morality. And in order to be good, you have to look the part and act a certain way. It doesn't have anything to do with your heart, you know? And I think Valency is guided by her conscience. Yeah. Not by the appearance of goodness. She has integrity. <laughs> you know, she says, my heart says that the way we treat people, the way we act is more important than how we appear to other people. She doesn't care how people perceive her because she knows that she's guided by what is really true, like true with a capital T. Yeah. That actually makes me think a little bit of when we go back to that moment at the beginning where Valency, before she goes to see Dr. Trent, she's reading the new John Foster book and she reads the line, fear is the original sin. Mm. And that's the line that sort of changes her life. I think once Valency stops being afraid, afraid of what other people think, afraid of how other people will judge her, partly freed by this diagnosis, which kind of like, well, you don't have to worry what other people think because you won't have to be around to live with the consequences. Mm -hmm. But I think once she doesn't have that fear, it opens the door for her to pay attention to her own moral compass, her own... Yeah idea of what is good and what is the right thing to do because right. she doesn't have to be afraid of appearances anymore. Right. You look at Sissy, who was seen as disgraced, but she's very sickly and is in need of both care and a friend and someone mm -hmm. to love her. And Valency sees, she sees with clarity what the right thing to do is there and who Sissy really is also. She doesn't look at Sissy as someone who's been disgraced. I think that she becomes very clear-sighted about what true goodness means, not the Victorian goodness. Yeah, I think that's right. I see the tension as being between propriety, like that high Victorian propriety that you're referring to, Katie, and authenticity, that true with a capital T, right? And that's like the conflict that I think, if I'm just sort of extrapolating way out, I think that that internal conflict is why Valency was so unhappy. Yeah, I think as a character, she's someone with an incredibly strong moral code and living in this way that felt inauthentic to her was quite literally killing her. 
Yes. So Valency, with her diagnosis, she becomes freed from the bounds of propriety, freed from having to live with the consequences, as you said, Reagan. She goes to help Sissy in the last week of her life. And this is something that she goes and does, a, a girl from a, a well-known, well-regarded family in Deerwood. And this is not something that any of the other purportedly Christian families in Deerwood have ever done because of Chrissy's notorious reputation. And this also kind of shows up around Valency's experimentation with religion as well, right? She starts attending the lovely Free Methodist Church instead of the status-conscious Anglican church that she and all the other Sterlings attended. So Valency's family is very conscious of how things look and what appears proper, and they're not concerned with actual goodness. Goodness for them is obedience and being mindful of how other people will perceive you, and it's not really about those deeper values. Mm -hmm. After Valency leaves her mother's house to go live with Sissy and Roy Nabel, Uncle James told Valency's mother that she should have barred the door and she responds, quote, she was between me and the front door, and you can't realize how determined she was. She was like a rock. That's the strangest thing of all about her. She used to be so good and obedient, and now she's neither to hold nor bind. Sissy Gay is dying, she said, and it's a shame and disgrace that she is dying in a Christian community with no one to do anything for her. Whatever she's been or done, she's a human being. When Valency's mother rebuked her by asking her if she had no regard for appearances, Valency said, I've been keeping up appearances all my life. Now I'm going in for realities. Appearances can go hang. <gasps> I love this line. I love yeah. this moment for Valency. It's a perfect example of that tension between the kind of goodness the Sterling's prize, obedience, conformity, upholding the social order, versus the kind of goodness that Valency holds in her heart. And it also makes sense that once Valency leaves the town of Deerwood to go live in the more rural area, she'd find her way to a different church. So she starts attending the Free Methodist Church. And we learned that the Free Methodist Church has simple services and fervent singing. And the church itself was a humble building with windows open to the pine woods. I can see why Valency loved this little unstuffy church. And I'm reminded of one of our favorite lines in Anne of Green Gables. When Anne scandalizes Marilla by telling her that if she really wanted to pray, she would walk out to the field or to the woods and look up into the sky and just feel a prayer. Ugh. Love that line. I love that line too. Okay, so I looked up the Free Methodists because I had no idea what that denomination was. And it's actually really interesting. It was apparently founded in part as an anti-slavery alternative to, I guess, regular Methodists, <laughs> which at that time did not take any kind of official stance against slavery. I'm sure the Methodists have since taken such a stand, but you know... <laughs> In the middle of the 19th century, things were a little bit dicier. But so the Free Methodists preached freedom of worship with the Holy Spirit, which meant that congregants could participate in the rituals of church, or they could just sort of like sit quietly praying, doing their own thing. Another one of their founding principles, which also aligns very squarely with these ideas of freedom and social equality, was that parishioners couldn't purchase a pew, which was, I have recently learned, a very common practice for churches during the 1800s, that families would purchase pews as a fundraising effort, but then it would end up causing really intense social stratifications with wealthy families in front and poor families in the back or even up in the rafters. So although Valency says she hasn't changed religions, she just likes the free Methodist minister better. I do think that part of the comfort she finds in attending this church is that refusal to adhere to social convention. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And I think that lines up with that theme of looking through social convention to find your true ethics and morals. And that's just what Valency is 
totally in the process of doing throughout the Blue Castle. And she gets to stare at pine trees during church because really nature has become Valency's church. And the works of John Foster have allowed her to hold nature in a sort of holy reverence. And once she's actually living in this like extremely rural setting with the gays and then with Barney, she becomes integrated and connected with nature on this like more spiritual level. And that goes back to, we talked a little bit about this in some of our earlier Anne episodes about the romantics and how being close to nature was to be spiritual, was to be- Was to be close to God, right? God created nature. And so spending time in nature, being connected to the natural world was a sort of spirituality. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like a through line through a lot of Maud's book. And it's just very big here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know in the themes of the Anne of Green Gables book that I annotated, I talk about- how Maud's descriptions of nature are reverent. They, yeah. The way she describes nature is religious. Yes. I think reverent is a perfect word for it. It's not just a pretty sunset. It is a religious experience. It mm-hmm. is connected yeah. to something bigger. Yep. It's proof of God. Yes. And in this book, we see that Valency isn't just observing nature from a safe distance or through a window. She's immersed in it and she's open and receptive and she's noticing the change of seasons, the colors and sounds, the animals and foliage that make up their island and the lake and the woods. And the more integrated with nature that Valency becomes, the more self-assured she is and the more willing she is to live by her own moral code. So again, we see this sort of like nature equals truth. To me, and I don't, you guys may disagree with me on this. I, I wonder if I'm going off on a little bit of like a tangent, but there's almost like a Buddhist sensibility to Valency's spiritual connection with nature. I'm not at all an expert in Buddhist theology, so I don't want to like dwell too long on this point. But one area of contrast with Christian faiths is the focus on living mindfully in the present as opposed to living with an eye to like a heavenly future. Mm. And over the course of the novel, we see that Valency has made a similar theological shift, right? Early on in the book, she's lying awake at night thinking of all the things in her life that have gone badly, all the ways, you know, that she has been wronged. And she's casting her mind forward to the future and she sees that nothing awaits her but more drudgery and misery. But once she gets this diagnosis and she believes she only has a year to live, she begins experimenting with living only in the moment, taking risks, saying the things she's thinking and feeling. And over the course of the book, with that time spent in nature and with Barney, she becomes very attuned to the present moment and is able to live in the moment without thinking about her painful past or worrying about an uncertain future. Mm-hmm. And even though she knows she's going to die, she's not dwelling on that at all. It has totally freed her. She's not worried about death at all. She knows it's going to happen. And she's like, it's going to happen. I'm just going to live right now, today. Yeah. And not obsessed with what what comes when she dies. Yeah. Well, let's shift our gears a little bit and talk a little bit about how Valency is dazzlingly clever. So this is another area where both Valency and Anne have some interesting similarities, but they show up really differently. Both Valency and Anne are keen observers of others, very attentive to, aware of the hypocrisy and the follies of their neighbors. But while Anne can notice these things and good-naturedly laugh them off, well, as long as no one's calling her carrots, she's <laughs> she's got her limit. <laughs> Anne is very optimistic and cheerful about people. She accepts their quirks and their little hypocrisies that we all have. And mostly she just enjoys people. She even enjoys the terrible Pringle family once they let her. Mm-hmm. Valency is really troubled by behavior she sees as small-minded, ungenerous, inauthentic. As a result of those different approaches, Anne 
gets along with others very easily. We've often talked about what Maud has called her genius for friendship. And Valency struggles. She's never had a good friend. She's ill at ease in most social situations. She goes mute and withdrawn. But Valency does have this sly, sharp sense of humor, and she's very canny when it comes to her family and their absurdities and of the social stratifications, I think, in Deerwood. When Valency is in Deerwood, a lot of her natural intelligence is focused on just trying to stay under the radar of her large, overbearing family. Right. She's kind of like an, a cornered animal in the woods a lot of the time. She's like, what do I have to do to just like not be made fun of in any given social situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's trying her best to make herself as small as possible so that no one will notice her. Yeah. Yes. But once she starts to escape the oppression of her family, we see that her sense of humor and intelligence have room to grow and breathe. You know, that first family dinner after Valency has her moment of revelation. Her humor is a little mean-spirited with her family. Funny, but Mm -hmm. she's a little mean. And she's kicking back at all the insults and indignities that her family has heaped upon her in the past. Maybe it's not undeserved, but eventually when Valency becomes happier, her humor becomes more gentle. It's still sharp. She's, She's sharper, I think, than Anne most of the time in that way. Yeah. But she's able to find them funny in a less hurtful way. She can laugh at her family's foibles, but she doesn't have to be as mean with it because they don't bother her anymore. She has some distance from it. She's off living her best life. Maud tells us that, quote, Valency was so happy she didn't hate her people anymore. (laughs) I think that over the course of the book, she learns boundaries. And when you have boundaries, it makes it easier to love more freely. Yes, because you're not hoping for anybody to treat you differently. Right. Because you have already drawn the boundaries that protect you. Yep. I think it's actually a really beautiful picture of her ability to still love her family Mm -hmm. and remain in her family's life, even though they were terrible to her. But because she won't let them hurt her anymore, she can still love them. She's able to like- She's taking responsibility for her own happiness. Yeah, she's taking responsibility for her own happiness and she doesn't need to feel anything but at the worst pity for her family because they don't, Mm -hmm. they are not enjoying life the way they could. Exactly. And I think having that little bit of distance, I like the way that you phrase it, that it allows her to still love them in a way because she can just see them for who they are and Mm -hmm. not expect them to be anybody different. There's actually this term in therapy that comes from a particular model, but it's called radical acceptance. Mm -hmm. And that's where Valency is. You need to look at people very clearly, understand who they are and not expect them to be different. But that doesn't mean you have to take it. It just means that you can then make decisions where Uncle Benjamin is always going to make these terrible jokes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Nothing is going to change him. He will always make the jokes. How do I want to cope with that? Mm -hmm. kind of praying that Uncle Benjamin won't say the joke and then he does and then all that like rage or exasperation boils up. Yes. When you know that Uncle Benjamin is going to say the joke, you can, you're able to, to handle it. Yeah. Rather than like hoping that he's not going to and then like reeling when he does. Yes. So for listeners, if you have a family like this, I will give you a little bit of free therapeutic advice, which is that to create a mental bingo board of all of your family's most enraging traits. Imagine <laughs> yourself playing a little bingo with yourself. Yep. 
because all of a sudden now that's a fun game, right? Like give yourself a point every time Uncle Benjamin makes a terrible joke. Ding. <laughs> Ding. Right? Give yourself a point every time Mrs. Frederick, Valency's mother, says something like self-martyring. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of get the feeling that that's what Valency has done, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's so in her own family, in her own happiness, she has set such a strong boundary and taken responsibility for, you know, her own goodwill that now she can interact with her family at a bit of an arm's length, but it does allow her to have a relationship and maintain mm-hmm. that connection. If we go back to this idea of Valency's cleverness, one way that we do see is really different from Anne is that Anne is very smart in, she's indisputably smart, but in a very conventional way. Anne mm-hmm. is well-read, well-educated, particularly for her time. She works as a teacher. She works as a principal. She's a writer. She's a good writer. And she's someone who's making her living using her mind. And I don't know whether we'd say the same of Valency. It's not that we don't think she's smart. She is. But she seems to be more, aside from reading John Foster's books, we don't really see whether or not she's truly intellectually curious the same Mm -hmm. way that Anne is. Anne Mm -hmm. is very driven Mm -hmm. around intellectual pursuits. And partly that's probably for Anne. That's one of the things she has gotten positive recognition for is her brains. Mm -hmm. When she hasn't been able to get recognition for anything else from teachers and peers, Marilla and Matthew specifically take pride in Anne's academic accomplishments. Yeah. It seems like Valency's timidness kind of covered up her intelligence in the school setting, her fear. She wasn't outgoing. She shrank from reciting. She freezes up when she feels like she's in the spotlight. Her family doesn't think of her as clever or capable in any way because that's not her role in the family. You know, Uncle James is the clever one. Right. And Olive is Olive is intelligent. She apparently went to college, but again, in a very conventional way. But certainly Mrs. Frederick was never encouraging Valency to use her intelligence to question, to to wonder the way that Anne always has. Well, that would be Mrs. Frederick giving Valency too much freedom, right? Which she couldn't do because then that would change, as you say, Reagan, Valency's role in the family and, you know, mm-hmm. the roles of everyone else. And all this is so important to the Sterlings. They're not willing to see their family members grow if it means they have to change. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we know about people who are intellectually curious, right? They are asking difficult questions. They're wondering, mm-hmm. they're pushing back. And we know that Valency was never in encouraged to think for herself. Mm-hmm. But we do see Valency's cleverness show up in the way that she can evaluate her place in Deerwood society, where she can reckon with whether or not that's something she truly wants. She develops a really strong sense of self-awareness and an awareness of the people in the community around her. Like she's got her family's number. Oh, she really does. She might not be as conventionally educated as Anne, But she does develop into truly a free thinker, someone who's willing to go against the grain if it means she's living authentically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. And this free thinking on Valency's part ends up leading to some really upsetting allegations from the Sterling family. They become convinced that she is mad or, as one uncle suspects, that she is a changeling. (laughs) (laughs) It's like such a funny moment. He's like... Do you think she could be a changeling? And someone's like, she's 29. <laughs> she's not a baby. <laughs> she's a little old for that, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> they do wonder though about split personalities right I, no they genuinely think that she's like very mentally ill like needs to be hospitalized mentally ill and, and this is an old story unfortunately you know throughout history when women act outside of convention there are people around them who will decry them as mentally unstable or unwell or witches <laughs> <laughs> You know, and it's such a patronizing double standard because you have men like Barney or, you know, the real life analogs of like Henry David Thoreau or John Muir who would go off to live in the woods and they are celebrated as mavericks and naturalists and scientists. But women like Valency who choose to leave genteel society behind for a life on their own terms, they're seen as sick or unstable or unable to make decisions for themselves. I think it's really telling that when Valency finally began speaking up for herself and making choices about how best to live her life, her family assumed she had gone insane. It's an interesting theme for Maud to be exploring, especially at this time in history in the early 20th century when women were fighting for suffrage and temperance. And, you know, a lot of those battles really just came down to the right to personhood for women. Mm. So this idea of women breaking with convention would have been very much in the zeitgeist at this time. And it makes a lot of sense that Maud wanted to examine it more closely in her writing. And I just want to point out that she did, in many respects, she did this with Anne as well. Too. Oh, yeah. Um, um, a lot of the, a lot of the women, I mean, so Maud focuses on the partially, I think probably because it's what she knew, you know, she, she focuses on small town life, close knit enmeshed communities and mm -hmm. the lives of women and girls. And she always puts in her stories, women who do buck convention. I mean, yeah. even in Anne of Green Gables, we have, there's that quote from Mrs. Lynde when the prime minister comes to town and Mrs. Lynde says, you know, what a blessed change it would be if women were allowed the right to vote. I mean, she puts these sort of very early feminist ideas in her books. I just think this is a, a fascinating thing to think about. And with Valency, we see a similar sort of coming into her own, learning how to speak up for herself to not just to her, the women in her life, but also to the men in her life. Yes. She just, she learns to have a voice and to claim her personhood. Well, and there is a version of this book, maybe not the one that Maude would have written, where it goes much darker, right? Because one of the things that happens when after that disastrous family dinner is Uncle James goes to Dr. Marsh and wants Valency committed. Mm -hmm. He apparently also goes to his lawyer and both of them are like, <laughs> no. Like, that's dumb. <laughs> yeah, you can't have a woman committed because she backtalked you at the table, which is great that they said that because many other doctors and lawyers at the time would have given them different advice. Yeah. You know, a woman would kind of start speaking up for herself or like even worse, you know, maybe she is playing the game entirely and doing everything she's supposed to do. And the husband just gets tired of her and wants to marry someone else. So has her committed. There's, you know, tons of stories like that historically, unfortunately. And I think the fact that Maude is even sort of like scratching the surface of that here, tapping on the window here, she is speaking to this injustice that women were experiencing. Right. She plays it for comedy, mm -hmm. but there is a darker layer underneath it that in a different book would have looked different. Oh, yeah. But she's also like very much writing in convention with other women writers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, right? We are getting a ton of these kind of stories of women who suddenly woke up and realized they couldn't live the lives that were prescribed for them anymore. And then, of course, the people around them basically treating them like they had gone insane or were monsters or untrustworthy or unsafe. 
We've seen this trope in some other books we've discussed on the podcast, like Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper and Kate Chopin's The Awakening. Both of those were published in the 1890s, about 30 years before The Blue Castle. The Awakening especially is a really interesting comp to The Blue Castle. It ends really tragically, but it's a story where the protagonist leaves her life of comfort and wealth behind. She even leaves her children behind, which like at the time completely unheard of, in search of a greater connection with nature, a greater connection with her own physicality and with her own identity. I mean, that book was shocking when it was published and like, you know, banned all over the place. But if you read it now with a contemporary perspective, it is kind of, Reagan, what you're talking about, like the darker side of the Blue Castle, you know, the book that wasn't published that Maud could have told. It's a great book. You guys are absolutely right. It was a book that could have been told. I mean, I'm glad we got the book that we did. Yes, yes of course. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did not want the book where Valency was committed yeah. for talking back to Uncle Benjamin. Yes. <laughs> But we could have had that book and Maude absolutely knew that we could have had that book. And I think that she put the Uncle Benjamin character in there and, you know, teased that idea because she knew, she knew, she knew. She knew this was happening. She knew this was a reality for women. And she knew that for a woman to make the choice to live outside of conventional society came with like really dire consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that theme also shows up in Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Have you guys read this book recently or have you read it like in school? I read, I read it in, in college. Yeah. yeah. It's been a while, but I read it in college. I'd love I to read it I freaking love this book. And I was thinking about it a lot while I was doing this reread of The Blue Castle. They're not perfect read-alikes, but there's so much that is going on in Their Eyes Were Watching God that's also happening in The Blue Castle. It's such an incredible book, right? So it has a lot about nature and personhood and love, and it just like ratchets all of that up to a thousand. And then of course, there's that additional impact about being about Black people living in the American South in the early 20th century and all of the, of course, racism and violence and danger that that entails. I mean, Their Eyes Were Watching God, I really, it's such a marvel because it is somehow wildly romantic and deeply unsettling and just gorgeous throughout every page. There's some line that's just going to knock your socks off. And then there's like high romance and high drama. It's great. But at any rate, like Valency in the Blue Castle, Janie in Their Eyes Were Watching God makes that choice to leave a life of comfort and status for love, for a true connection with herself and with a true connection with the natural world. Like Valency, Janie is the subject of gossip and speculation, but she's off living her best life. And just like Valency's rosebush, Janie's growth and self-determination are symbolized by a pear tree in bloom. So they really are like analogous in some interesting ways. Do you remember when that book was written? Early 1930s. So a few years after Blue Castle. Okay. That's so interesting. Those parallels are so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're really doing a lot of the same work. I mean, Zora Neale, her book, I think is a lot richer than the Blue Castle. No shade to the Blue Castle at all, but it's, you know, it's a different kind of book. But again, a lot of these themes are showing up in similar ways. Well, probably speaks a lot to what our women's consciousness around what was happening on a societal level, what what that conversation was starting to be. I think it's also interesting. So we have Their Eyes Were Watching God, which was very literary, and The Blue Castle, which of course is a beautiful, I would argue, literary read, but it's more fluffy. Yeah, it's, it's more of like popular fiction. Yes. Yeah. But I guarantee you these ideas that she was putting into this novel were resonating with women. And of course, men weren't reading these books and they would probably have been, you know, shocked to discover 
to discover yes. the, the ideas that were being incorporated into this popular fiction. <laughs> well, that leads us right into talking about one of our favorite ways that the Blue Castle shares DNA with the Anne books, which is romance. Mm-hmm. Yes. So while Anne and Gilbert is the slowest of slow burns, <laughs> Blue Castle is a self-contained, perfectly sweet romance all on its own. It all takes place in slightly over a year. So let's talk about Valency and Barney's romance. So in some ways, this is very much the opposite of Anne and Gilbert, right? Anne and Gilbert start out with Gilbert noticing Anne, and their first interactions are prickly and fractious. And then they're academic rivals to friends, to one friend wanting more romance than the other friend, until eventually, finally, to lovers. And as we've discussed at length, it's a long, slow burn for, for Anne. I mean, yeah, Gilbert, Gilbert was there right away. Gilbert, Gilbert got it. <laughs> he was really patient and generally willing to be in Anne's life, however she would allow him to be. Yeah. Anne's romantic daydreams take a long time to evolve enough to allow for Gilbert to be her romantic hero, which makes a great deal of sense because Anne is only 11 when they first meet. And although it seems like fated mates to pretty much everyone but Anne, she's still only 22 when she finally realizes that she loves Gilbert. She's still a baby. Yes. (laughs) So in contrast, Valency is already 29 when we meet her. And one of the things we find out is that the romantic heroes in her blue castle have already undergone multiple upgrades. (laughs) (laughs) You know, her idea of romance grew and matured as as she did. And Valency is the one who's smitten or at least intrigued by Barney practically from her first glimpse of him. She only has to see him once for her blue castle knight in shining armor to start resembling him physically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Question for you guys about this. Do you think that when Valency's blue castle knight began resembling Barney, that Valency herself had made the connection to like the real life Barney Snaith? Would Valency have thought of herself as like having a crush on him? Or do we think she was like totally unconscious about her own interest in Barney? I think she was unconscious of it. But I do think that she was intrigued about him. And I think partly it reminds me of when Anne, that the famous quote when Anne, when she's talking about the man she wants to fall in love with and she says that she would like him, she wouldn't like him to be truly wicked, but she would like it if he could be wicked and wouldn't. And I think (laughs) that Barney embodies this idea very much. And I I love that. Yeah. Actually, that is an excellent quote about Barney. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Because everybody thinks that he is wicked. Yes. And and she kind of likes that about him, that he's all like the bad boy. That does not turn her off from him at all. Oh, that is a point in his favor. (laughs) Even after even after they're married, (laughs) even after they're married, she's sure that he like is is embroiled in some sort of scandal still. But yeah, so it's definitely not a not a turnoff for her. Yeah. Yeah, she's fine with it. Uh, she's like, fine with it. Look, if you're going to rebel against your family, go all the way. Go ahead. Be with like the person they think is a murderer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I do think I agree with Katie. I don't think she's quite conscious of her crush on him because remember when she defends him so fervently to her family, she mm-hmm. even thinks to herself she wasn't entirely sure why she cared that much. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was she surprised herself. Yeah. Yeah. I think at that point, like when her Blue Castle hero starts having tawny hair and a rakish air, I don't think he's yet a direct Barney analog, but he's clearly seeping into her Mm -hmm. subconscious. Yes. Oh, I love that. 
Well, and we do see that Valency is the pursuer in this relationship. Now, she has been on speaking terms with Barney only for a few weeks, and she realizes she loves him. And not when he's on his deathbed, like Anne with Gilbert, but in this like very ordinary moment when he's driving her back from the dance and telling her that they've run out of gas. <laughs> It's so simple, but so beautiful, honestly. Mm -hmm. There's like a kind of similarity in Anne's realization for her love for Gilbert and Valancy's realization of her love for Barney, because Maude really knows how to write this moment. <laughs> this beautiful point in time when all of a sudden your world just sort of tilts and you realize that you are different. You've fallen in love. Mm -hmm. And Maude makes the most of these moments and really fills them with this like deep emotional impact. But for Anne, of course, in this moment, it's her book of revelation. And whatever joy she might feel at realizing her love for Gilbert is entirely overshadowed by her fear for his well-being and her regret for their time not together and just all this panic really over whether or not he's going to get well and whether they'll be able to have a life together. And then meanwhile, beautifully, Valency gets this incredibly pure moment when she realizes she loves Barney. But her realization is not tainted by the expectation of reciprocity. She just enjoys the feeling of being in love with someone for its own sake. And like, again, I'm put in mind of Buddhist philosophy, that idea of non-grasping attachment. She's not relying on Barney to participate in the love she feels at all. She's not heartbroken because he may not love her back. She's just enjoying what that feels like in that moment. And I'm going to go ahead and read the beautiful quote from this scene. Love, what a searing, torturing, intolerably sweet thing it was, this possession of body, soul, and mind, with something at its core as fine and remote and purely spiritual as the tiny blue spark in the heart of the unbreakable diamond. No dream had ever been like this. She was no longer solitary. She was one of a vast sisterhood. All the women who had ever loved in the world. Barney need never know it, though she would not in the least have minded his knowing, but she knew it, and it made a tremendous difference to her. Just to love. She did not ask to be loved. It was rapture enough just to sit there beside him in silence, alone in the summer night, in the white splendor of moonshine, with the wind blowing down on them out of the pine woods. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we can learn so much from Valency about living in the moment. I honestly felt so inspired by her and that approach to life when I was rereading this book for our discussion. I kind of wish Anne had been able to read that because what's interesting about Anne in her moment, she has her book of revelation. She realizes she loves Gilbert, but as soon as he is out of danger, she starts doubting again whether or not he loves her. Yeah. And she immediately starts worrying about Christine Stewart. She immediately starts worrying about feeling jealous. She doesn't feel like she can even bring this to Gilbert in any way. But Valency has the exact opposite experience where this realization frees her and she delights yes. in it because Barney's part in it. <laughs> it's important, but it's not. She loves him for who he is. And that is enough for her. I'm going to well, skip ahead, though, because this changes at the end of the book when she realizes that she's not really going to die. Right. And then that's when she has a crisis. But again, it's not really about his feelings for her in that she needs him to love her. It's that she feels like she has trapped him. Right. And she's she worried about the ethics of it. 
Right. And she doesn't want him to feel, she's afraid that he's going to feel obligated to stay with her because he's a good person. Yes. Well, here's also the thing I think about it, right? Like the big difference is that when she has this moment that she realizes she loves Barney, she is free because she doesn't have to live with the consequences right. of whether or not it's ever requited, yes. whether, no matter what happens, it doesn't kind of doesn't matter. Right. Right. She's because she's not, she's not going to be around. And once that changes, once she realizes that, oh no, then she starts wondering whether or not it was really true, this experience. Was it ethical? Yeah. She yeah. worries about what that means for Barney, right? Mm -hmm. That he didn't agree. Yeah, he agreed to marry her for a year, not for forever. Mm -hmm. I see too here in this moment, some of what we were talking about before, what Katie brought up about boundaries, just as Valency doesn't feel responsible for how her parents are going to react to her, she doesn't feel responsible for how Barney is going to react to her love. Mm -hmm. It's not important to her. She's just feeling her feelings. Yeah. And so when she proposes to him, she's also surprisingly unself-conscious. I mean, this woman who's lived yeah. the first 29 years of her life in this constant state of fear and anguish of what people think of her, flat out asks Barney to marry her with no preamble. Yeah. yeah. Which goes back to that quote at the very beginning about fear, too. She's able to say directly to Barney that she's crazy about him. She wants to spend the last couple of months of her life happy and free and with him. Whatever Barney does with the proposal is not really something she's worried about. She just wants to be open and honest about it. And after they do marry, Barney is the one who has to come to the realization that he loves Valency. Mm -hmm. And this happens for much like Anne, right? Realizing that she loves Gilbert. It's in small bits at a time. He realizes how happy he is to come home and find Valency waiting for him. He realizes he enjoys her company on his nature rambles in quiet evenings at home. But his love is crystallized in the moment of the train bearing down on Valency trapped on the rail. The revelation that he cannot live without her just clangs like a thunderclap in his soul. Because, of course, Maude loves to remind her characters that they are actually in love with these like moments of peril. <laughs> yes. Gilbert and Anne, yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, and that's the thing for Anne, right? She resisted love and she resisted romance, true love and romance for a long time, not just with Gilbert, but with anyone. And if we think about the difference in age between Anne and Valency, that resonates, right? Anne needs time to be herself, to gradually be ready for the vulnerability of love. Valency, once she has that freedom of her death sentence, can throw herself headlong into love. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability is a much easier risk to take when you don't have to worry so much about the consequences. Yeah. For Anne, love was the culmination of her growth arc in many ways. And for Valency, love is the vehicle for much of her growth. In Loving Barney, Valency becomes more of herself. Being able to give away her love is fulfilling and freeing for Valency, allowing her to love herself. Anne has the luxury of time that Valency doesn't think that she has. Anne has to become herself before she can allow herself that vulnerability of truly admitting that she loves Gilbert, a real person, not an imaginary one. Yeah, I love what you said, Reagan, about for Valency, love is the vehicle for her growth. That's really, really beautifully put and such a yeah. keen observation here. It just makes me think about how we've been talking a lot about Valency's like self-actualization, but her self-actualization is often very self-sacrificial in so many ways. It's like when you give a gift, it's always better to give than to receive. And Valency is yes. really living, living her self-actualization is really living that out in every aspect of her life. And I think that's one of the things that makes 
her childhood so different from Anne's? Because one of the things we see that's so remarkable about Anne as a young child is how immediately she has so much love to give. She just needed a place to put it. She had all of these imaginary friends that were the recipients of her love. And once she had even the smallest chance of a real friend, she threw herself into love. Mm -hmm. She loved Matthew by the time they got home from that drive. She already knew he was a kindred spirit. She sees kindred spirits everywhere, whereas yes. Valency has never felt that kind of connection with yes. anyone. Yes. She hasn't known the joy of being able to give away love yeah. until maybe her time with Sissy is sort of the yeah. first. Yes. She gets to do that, right? Where she finds that being needed, being able to give to someone else is fulfilling for her. It's of her choosing too. She's not being forced to do it. She sees the need and responds of her own free will. Speaking of Sissy, that also makes me think, you know, yes, she gave her time, her energy, her companionship to Sissy, and she gave her love to Sissy, and Sissy died. And she learned, Valency learned that even with Sissy's death, that love wasn't wasted. That love was so important that, you know, changed the trajectory of Sissy's final days. And it's almost like that was the permission slip to love with abandon the way Anne did, right? She saw that it doesn't go to waste. Yes. Well, let's compare our two romantic heroes, two of our very favorite romantic heroes ever, Gilbert and Barney. Okay, wait. First of all, though, you guys, who do you like better? <laughs> I know. Is it a possible question? To me. <laughs> Can, I don't know if I could possibly choose. So I pose this impossible question to you too. I think purely for nostalgic reasons, I have to choose Gilbert because he's been my true love for longer than Barney. But that's yeah. the only reason I think probably why I would choose him. <laughs> Yes, I have a hard time choosing. I think I probably have to go with Gilbert for the same reason in the sense of he was my template for romance, right? My template for what I wanted in a potential love. Whereas Barney is much more, he's much more of the adult. Yeah. Version. Here's the thing though. I, unlike Anne, have never been super interested in like the bad boy archetype. Like that never was really my thing. So on that, even though we know that Barney's not truly a bad boy, the initial like, that's what sort of attracts Valency to him. But I will, I, I will say though, I married much more of a Barney than a Gilbert like and I was I was never someone who was attracted to the the bad boy ever like I was always <laughs> but I ended up with kind of I ended up with the bad boy with the heart of gold that's kind of the Barney I did yeah that is the Barney I'll be the odd one out and say that as much as I love Gilbert and as much as he imprinted on me in childhood as like an ideal romantic hero Barney really like sings to my soul there's something about someone who has these unexpected depths that I find incredibly appealing mm -hmm. like Gilbert what you see is what you get he is so straightforward. He is so honest. He is exactly himself in every situation. Barney is like, look, if you get to know me, I might tell you about my secret life as a naturalist. <laughs> <laughs> but I still might not. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> or that I'm secretly super rich. Like, Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. So Gilbert is a golden boy in Avonlea, right? He's adored, a leader among his peers. He's intelligent. He isn't threatened by Anne's intelligence. And in fact, it spurs him to greater academic heights. He's very secure in his place in the world. And while we don't know a lot about his family from the books, it's inferred that he does come from a loving home with both parents, even though his father has experienced some health challenges. His parents aren't rich, since we know Gilbert has to work hard to earn money and scholarships for college and medical school. And Gilbert has a rock solid work ethic that 
that never wavers. He's known he wanted to be a doctor for years. He works tirelessly toward that goal. Anne is his only love. He is never ever tempted by anyone else, regardless of what a certain miniseries may try to convince us of. <laughs> and it hurts him deeply when Anne says that she doesn't love him back. But because Gilbert is so secure in himself, it doesn't seem like it made him doubt his worth as a person overall. Gilbert doesn't have to throw his whole life away when Anne rejects him. He knows who he is, right? What you see is what you get with Gilbert Blythe and what his goals are apart even from his hoped for relationship with Anne. By contrast, Barney is the furthest thing from a golden boy in Deerwood. Yep. <laughs> if the Sterlings are to believe, he is considered to be a criminal and a reprobate. Now, that's mostly because he lives in the woods and has a really loud car. So it's not exactly resting on like hard evidence, but definitely not a paragon in the community. You know, Gilbert, mothers were telling their younger sons, why can't you be more like Gilbert? Nobody mm -hmm. is saying to their son, oh, you should be more like Barney. Uh -huh. The loud car is the funniest part to me. It's like, because he has this like rackety loud car, everyone is like, he must be a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that's a leap. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> we see that even before Deerwood, Barney felt like he never fit in. He never had any friends. His mother died when he was young. His father is well-meaning, but obviously was absent significantly because he had, you know, that red fern purple pill empire to build. <laughs> His father gave him every material thing he could ever wish for. He sent him to the best schools. Gilbert could have dreamed of being sent to all of these schools, right? Oh, yeah. But all of that money couldn't buy Barney love or acceptance. It couldn't offer him a home that was warm to come home to. And when Barney did fall in love with the hypocritical Ethel Travers, she made him feel loved for the first time. But it turned out she was only in it for Barney's money and she had no interest in him as a person. That heartbreak destroyed Barney because unlike Gilbert, he didn't have that bone deep sense of self-worth. He was rootless for a while, wandering everywhere, eventually finding solace in his writing as John Foster, but determined to keep people out so he would never be betrayed again like he'd been with Ethel and thoroughly convinced that no one would ever love him as he truly is. But both Barney and Gilbert see the beauty in our unconventional looking heroines and both of them fall in love, not for the way that their loves look but with their character. Gilbert falls for Anne in the moment of her worst temper and impetuousness and violence as she smashes <laughs> a slate over his head. And his love grows by sparking against Anne's intelligence and challenge. Nothing he loves more than someone who will resort to violence. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that is a hidden depth to Gilbert. Yeah, he likes a bad girl. <laughs> Barney starts falling for Valency, unbeknownst to him initially, when he recognizes her deep, pure goodness and strength of character, something Valency doesn't even yet know that she possesses. And Barney's intrigued by Valency's contradictions. She's an old maid from a stuffy, proper family, but then she's surprisingly funny, and she's willing to admit that she'd like to curse sometimes too, just flaunting that proper upbringing. Right. In our previous episode, we discussed that moment where Barney really seems to notice how extraordinary it is that Valency left the Sterlings to go care for Sissy Gay, how Valency is really acting in accord with her own moral code while totally shunning her family's expectations. For Barney, Valency's love saves him just as much as his love saves Valency. He finds worth when he realizes how much Valency loves him just as he is. Shabby clothes, seemingly directionless, devoted to nature, hermit-like cabin on a lonely island. <laughs> 
he finds that Valency is someone who loves the same thing that he loves with no agenda. She's enchanted by nature, by his words before she even knows that he's the author. She revels in the lack of structure in their life together, and she enjoys his company with no strings attached. She has no interest in making Barney respectable, although she does make him shave. In fact, his very disreputable nature is part of Valency's attraction to him. She admires that he decides for himself what is right or wrong and how to live, not following social pressures or dictates without thinking and questioning them. Valency's loving him for who he is. She has no idea about his family money. She genuinely thinks he might be a criminal. All of that helps Barney see his own worthiness and helps him find a middle ground between living in the woods like a hermit and living in high society. And so together, Barney and Valency are able to create their own path forward with some time spent with their families, some time spent traveling, and plenty of time spent alone together on their island in the lake. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you guys, this has been such a fun discussion of why we love the Blue Castle so much and why it's a wonderful companion book to the Anne series, especially those books that deal with Anne's young adulthood. Before we move on from Valency and Barney forever, does anyone have any last thoughts they want to share or a puffed sleeve moment of something special that we didn't get to talk about before? How about you, Katie? Did we miss any of your favorite things about the Blue Castle? I just want to say that I I think that it is a wonderful companion. I want to just reiterate or, or echo that it's a wonderful companion book to the Anne series. And I and I just kept thinking as I was reading it, this book has a particular feeling when you read it, and it's you can tell, especially the younger Anne books when Anne is Anne is young, Anne of Green Gables, and maybe a little bit Anne of Avonlea. This is really and truly the one I think maybe the only adult book that that Ellen Montgomery wrote. And it definitely feels more adult than Anne. And there are only a few books, and I'm not sure I could even name another one where I get the same feelings as I read. It feels so caught in time. Yes. And you really, I don't know, I just, I I love it. It just envelops you in this very unique, special way that feels very 1920s. Like you Mm -hmm. just... Oh, I just, I don't know. I'm not being articulate, but I really love it. I think you have articulated it beautifully. There's kind of nothing like the Blue Castle. Like, I genuinely can't think of a read alike. I'm not the most well read person on the planet, but I've read a lot of books, and it's just like there is nothing like this book. Yeah. There is nothing that sort of captures the incredibly emotionally honest relationship between Barney and Valency, that connection to the natural world, these issues that we talked about with women finding themselves and self-actualizing, but all still doing it in this way that's very like gentle and soothing. And, you know, like you said, Katie, just like wraps you up. It is so special. And it's also like along with all those things, it's also just so deeply romantic. Oh, yeah. It's so just swoony and just makes you feel all of the things. And I, I was yeah. reading my my Goodreads review of it today. And I guess the first time I read it, I cried multiple times in the book. I didn't oh, cry. So time, did I. But it's just such an emotional ride, not only because of what Valency goes through, but also just the journey that she and Barney take together, like a real true romance. And I love it. It touches that idea that we all want to be seen for who Mm -hmm. we are and loved truly for who we are. And they have such this lovely unforced relationship Mm -hmm. with this idea of we have no agenda for each other. 
We just genuinely enjoy each other's company. It's so simple, but it's very profound. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. I I feel like Valency and Barney are really modeling this, like our romance, our relationship with each other, our life together is enough. Yeah. And when I think about the Anne books, which we love, obviously, so much, Anne and Gilbert are really guided by ambition in, Mm -hmm. in really fun and interesting and dynamic ways. But these two, Barney and Valency, once they find each other, it's like, that's it. We don't want anything more. Like they want simplicity. They have found enough with each other. Okay. Well, here's a little funny moment that's a puffed sleeve for me. It's just a little detail that I love is I love how devoted Barney and Valency are to Barney's two cats, Banjo and Good Luck. Totally. (laughs) Yes. 100% agree with this. And I love it. The way they describe Banjo is he's such a very cat's cat. He's a little Mm -hmm. crumpy. He's very particular and he's very funny when he chases his own tail, a little uncanny kind of cat. And that I love this line. They both agree that good luck as a cat is so lovable, he practically amounted to an obsession. Oh. (laughs) As somebody who loves her cats and her dog, I totally understand loving your pet so much that they're practically an obsession and how loving your pet with your spouse or with your person is just like such a lovely thing to do together. Is that weird? No, it's so perfect. (laughs) You just get to enjoy your pets, right? Like, Like kids, it's great. Like I love watching my husband with my daughter and I love parenting with him, but that's different, right? Like, yeah, that's that's a job you guys are doing together. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, even in the names, Maude is just so good at naming things in general. She really is. Such a good, so good at naming things. But Banjo and Good Luck, a cat named Good Luck. I mean, it's so weird and also just perfect. Amazing. Yes. Okay, let me ask you guys this question because this is one unanswered question I have and maybe you guys can... Tell me your theories. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, Barney's got that mysterious shed that he disappears into. And Valency says there's like a weird chemical smell that comes from there. And she determines she thinks he must be counterfeiting money in there. She's decided that that's his, <laughs> that must be his, that's maybe that's, that was his crime. And she's fine with it. She's like, whatevs, no harm, no foul. I'm not in You do you. Right? Don't ask, don't tell. It's fine. Yeah. But then at the end, right, she goes in. And it turns out it's his writer's den. Yeah. He never explained what the weird smells were. If he's in there writing, what else is the man doing? You know what, Reagan? I don't think this is right. But I think when I was reading the book, I just assumed that the weird smell was like ink. But I mean, that can't be it, right? Like I just was trying to make it. Ink is this man writing with? I was just trying to make it work in my head. So that's like kind of where I went. But I agree. That is kind of a, a strange loose thread. That's a loose end. I, I almost don't know. wonder whether she was going somewhere with him helping to invent red fern potions. But then it made very clear that he has had zero contact with his dad. Yeah. yeah and he wants nothing to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I wonder know. wonder if she just left that in there. I don't know. She just wanted to add to like the mild undercurrent of like, could Barney be dangerous? Right. <laughs> So as for puff sleeve moments, I have so many. It was really, really hard to choose. But I did want to highlight two characters who kind of defy expectations for us. So that's going to be Valency's cousin, Georgiana, and Barney's dad, Mr. Redfern, who I am not calling that old charlatan doctor. He is Mr. Redfern. (laughs) Uh, 
by the time Barney and Valencia are married, they've both left their families behind, right? They've kind of gone no contact. And yet these two find ways to hold on to them. Cousin Georgiana gives Valency a lovely quilt as a wedding present. It's a candle wick pattern quilt, which I have no idea what that looks like, but it sounds charming. And then of course, Mr. Redfern finds Barney out in the woods and welcomes Valency with open arms. So you see that there is goodness in these people, right? There are goodness in the people around Barney and Valency, even if the like larger institutions or the larger societies that they represent are problematic. I love that. I think that's a good point because cousin Georgiana actually can do for Valency something her mother refuses to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like she acknowledges her marriage and she wishes good things. She's giving her this quilt because she's wishing a good thing for Valency. I want you to be happy. And a quilt is a traditional present. So here, here's a a lovely quilt. I think that's wonderful. So as usual, we're going to finish with our inspired by segment. And this time, of course, we will be inspired by Valency and Barney. For me, I'm going to be recommending the Perfumer Imaginary Authors. They don't just have perfume. They also have soap and candles. So you know it's right up our alley. (laughs) (laughs) So all of their fragrances are inspired by, you guessed it, imaginary authors. And each fragrance comes with a story that's very specific to a time and place. And the perfume that really reminds me of the Blue Castle is called Cape Heartache, which is inspired by an imaginary American naturalist author. The design on the bottle is very Victorian and it's gorgeous and just like very, very blue castle-y. Some of the like fragrance notes are Douglas fir and pine resin and Western hemlock and strawberry and mountain fog. I mean, oh this my is God. like, That's blue- like- Yes, it's like Blue Castle in a bottle. So definitely check this one out. These perfumes are a little expensive for a blind buy. They're about a hundred bucks a piece, but you can get a sampler set online and, and smell all of their delicious delicious fragrances. Well, for my inspired by, I was thinking of nature and John Foster's books and how those saved Valency. So of course, I'd love to recommend a beautiful natural getaway to get back in touch with living in the moment. But if you can't get out to do that right now, especially during the winter season, I thought I'd recommend a writer who writes about the natural world, which is Bill Bryson. And his book, A Walk in the Woods, which is about his experience of walking the Appalachian Trail, will also make you laugh out loud. So that's maybe not John Foster-ish. I think John Foster took himself quite seriously. And Bill Bryson does not. But he also writes a lot of other kind of travel, natural world books. Yes, he has these like travel books, but he also has these sort of general interest books. So he's got that science book. One of my favorite books by him is called The Mother Tongue. Tongue. I love Mother Tongue so much. But yeah, his travel writing too. That is a great recommendation. I'm going to say... So this book takes place outside of Toronto. So I live in Wisconsin, which, you know, it's not exactly by Toronto, but it's, if you go up North in Wisconsin or Northern Wisconsin, Northern Minnesota, it's a very similar feel. People will like deck you out for your canoe trip in the boundary water. So that's, that's what I'm going to say. And it, rent, or just rent a cabin in Northern Wisconsin in the Northwoods and you'll, you'll yes. go for it. It's amazing. Uh- you can have this experience, everyone. You can have your own Blue Castle summer, totally rent can. a cabin, right? Go canoeing. You know, you can have a very similar type of experience. You could maybe find your own Barney. There are a lot of lumberjacky kind of <laughs> yes. rapscallions in Wisconsin. <laughs> exactly. And if you do, yes. we want to know about that, please. 
Please let us know if that ever happens to you. Truly, we love hearing from you. We want to hear all of your romantic tales. Please tell us about your vacation romances. And if you would like to weigh in on Barney versus Gilbert as a romantic hero, we would love to hear that. Everyone, this wraps up season two of Kindred Spirits Book Club. We were delighted to end on such a beloved book with one of our favorite guests. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, I'm so honored and happy that you guys wanted to have me on to talk about the Blue Castle because it's also... <laughs> equally one of my favorite books and rereading it was such a joy and a pleasure yes oh thank you so well, much well thank you guys we are going to take a break for a few weeks but the podcast feed will be active again in early 2024 as we return to Anne and gilbert in Anne's house of dreams thank you all so much for listening thank you for supporting us for sharing our podcasts with your friends for emailing and dming us your thoughts and your theories we love hearing from you all and we wish you a very happy new year thank you so much for listening kindred spirits you can still get a free logo sticker from us though as a little holiday present by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing about us on social media. Just email us at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com or you can message us on Instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub to tell us that you did that. Even if you don't want a sticker, leave us a rating or review or share about us. It really helps other kindred spirits find us. Bye everybody. 